a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. You know the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. That's exactly what went through my head all day today, and especially whilst I was talking to Georgie on the podcast. And I'll explain to you exactly why in a moment. But before I do so, a little warning sign from me about today's episode. Georgie and I discussed the lack of information she had from her entire medical team when she was pushed into an early onset menopause in her 20s. In fact, no one had mentioned to her that this was the menopause. So she had no idea what her symptoms were, that some of them could be attributed because of the menopause. And she also has no idea where to go for help. In fact, Georgie thinks the only way for her to get adequate help is to pay for it and go and seek the help from a private doctor. So to me, there are many gaps, information gaps, support gaps, and The reason I have conversations like that is not to just point out the gaps because I think we all know that they're there. For some of you, they're a lot bigger than for others. The reason I want to point out and have these conversations is so that we all learn together how we can fill the gap. And that brings me back to the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Because this originates from an African proverb And it conveys the message that it takes many people, so the village, to provide a safe, healthy environment for children, where children are given the security they need to develop and flourish and to be able to realize their hopes and dreams. Let's for a moment just think you and I are the children and we need to realize our hopes and dreams of how we want to live post-cancer diagnosis in how we manage our menopause as well. And so this requires an environment where children's voices are taken seriously. And that's exactly what we do here on the podcast. I want to take every single voice seriously, no matter how much in the minority that voice is or the majority that voice is. And I want to hear all of your voices because I want to take them seriously. What matters to you really matters to me. And where multiple people, so the villagers, and they include parents, siblings, extended family members, Neighbours, teachers, professionals, community members and policymakers care for that child. So again, let's bring that to our situation. So the villagers, they would be our doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals, our yoga teachers, our counsellors, our other care providers, anyone that comes in contact with you to help you move forward. And these villagers may provide direct care to our children and or support to the parent in looking after their children. 
And so I think what's so beautiful about this is we are everything in our menopause and cancer conversations. Partly we're the children, but partly I really believe you and I are part of the villages as well. Because once we've really heard one another and listened, we will then go back out into our communities and we will inform our doctors, nurses, policymakers, the movers and shakers. And we will tell them where there is a massive lack of information, a massive gap in care. And so together, we as children and villagers, we can make this a better space. And so please don't think that I'm having these conversations to just point out the lack of care. I really want to have these conversations so that we can do something with that and improve everyone's care. I hope that makes sense. Georgia and I are also going to be talking about the lesser sort of talked about symptoms that come with the menopause, low libido, and why often we stop kissing perhaps and cuddling and spooning on the sofa, all those things that are also really quite lovely and intimate just because we're worried they might lead the situation onto the next step. There is so much value in talking to Georgie and I really hope that you will love her as much as I do. I've been following and knowing about Georgie for a long time. And if anyone oozes body positivity and if anyone can help you embrace your body, then that is Georgie. So let's welcome her in. I'm delighted to be here with you today, Georgie. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Georgie, I met you when you were first diagnosed with cancer quite a few years ago now and we met at an event and you had your gorgeous bald head and ever since then I've been following you, following your journey but I remember in the early years we never spoke much about menopause, did we? It was sort of surviving. Yeah, and I also, I didn't go into the menopause when I started treatment so I only went into the menopause after my second cancer, after my stem cell transplant, and a little bit after that. So going through going through treatment at first, I was quite unaware of what was to come. <laughs> so can you fill everyone else at home who's listening to us today in a little bit how old you were, what cancer you were diagnosed with? Yeah, of course. So when I was 26, I was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a form of blood cancer is actually very common in young adults and which is something that I wasn't aware of yet it's I, I actually think it's the most common cancer in young adults so I had all the typical symptoms for it and because I didn't know anything about it I left them and ignored them like you're never meant to do until I was diagnosed at a very late stage so I had symptoms like obviously fatigue, weight loss, um, I kept getting colds and flus, um, I had really itchy legs, bruising, uh, night sweats, and I just honestly put it down to I was going out a lot, I was busy, it was the summer, it was, you know, all these different things. And then I started a uh, course of six months of chemotherapy, which was wonderfully aggressive but my cancer was highly treatable so I went through it it was it wasn't the nicest experience obviously but I was very positive because I thought right I'm going to have it I'm going to do my chemo and then I'm going to be out the other side but without really thinking twice about it after I finished I then relapsed and my cancer came back 
which meant it was more chemotherapy, a stem cell transplant, and shortly following that, menopause at 28. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I know we can sort of talk about it and wrap it up in a box now, isn't it? Mm. But every single day feels like an eternity when you go through something so traumatic. It really does. I just want to pick up on something you said when you were going through your first sort of round of chemotherapy. Did your period stop then? Oh, it did. I had to like think then. Honestly, it feels like such a long, well, I say it feels like a long time ago. My brain is like marshmallow, so I can never remember (laughs) anything. Um, Yeah, no, no, it did. And then when I finished the treatment, it came back again. So, I mean, I was told it can affect your fertility and things, but I'd known people who had had the the cancer that I had and the first lot of chemo that I had, who then went on to get pregnant and have babies without any trouble, thankfully. So um, I just assumed it was part and parcel of it all, really. And I was the same as you, because when I had chemo, my period stopped. And I just thought that was a side effect of chemotherapy. But now I know it's actually temporary menopause. And I can't remember if my medical team told me and I just wasn't receptive to it or whether Mm. I really had no clue about, you know, women's bodies. I really knew very little about sort of what's going on. And it was just one of those things. But now I know it was temporary menopause. And so probably a lot of my what I thought were chemo side effects, where they were, were to do with also that loss of estrogen. That's crazy. You know, I never even thought about it like that because it is such a blurred line between what you think are side effects of chemotherapy and like the symptoms of the menopause and all those different things that I just equated were 100% is just chemo side effects. It makes a lot more sense now knowing what I know that it could have been temporary menopause because, you know, I went months without a period But I just thought, oh, well, that's just the chemo. But I mean, something you said about whether or not the medical team told you, I can't remember the first time, but when I was going through cancer the second time and the stem cell transplant, um, essentially, you know, it's a high risk to your fertility and you have to sign all this paperwork to say, you know, and all that jazz. But in those conversations, when they said, look, this treatment's likely going to make you infertile, no one said to me, that's the menopause. No one said, and it's probably ignorant for me a little bit because I just assumed, cool, not cool, but like I'll just be infertile. I didn't realise what would come with it. I didn't realise that meant that I would be in the menopause and it was only when I was going through it did the doctors go, yes, that's the menopause. And I think going into it knowing that I was going to be in the menopause would have been quite pleasant. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, of course, when you were presented with the facts and you had to sign all of those papers um, that you would become infertile, Mm. you'd do anything at that point, right? Because you're preserving your life, right? So there is no question. You sort of think you'll deal with it later. Oh, absolutely. In your case, was there ever time to maybe look at um, egg preservation or anything like that? No. So it's quite common for girls to have the cancer that I did to get given um, the option to freeze their eggs, which most obviously most people would choose to do. But because I was diagnosed at such a late stage, they said, you don't have the option because if you do that, you'll die. There's no, we ha- like, I mean, I got told on a Thursday I was in for chemo on the Friday, 
there was no time to mess with and so I didn't even pay a second thought then I was I was a bit like oh that's a shame but when I was first diagnosed there was only a small small risk to your fertility so I just thought you know it doesn't matter because my fertility isn't going to get you know a hit anyway um and then it was when I was doing the stem cell transplant which says you know it's 99% chance you'll lose your fertility and the 1% chance you'll keep it but you don't go okay well I don't want that then because if you don't have it you die I mean you just your head isn't I've actually had a conversation with this with a friend the other day and it was a case of, you know, well, did you second guess it or anything? I was like, absolutely not. Your head, like you said, it's in survival mode. You're in the middle of chemotherapy. You're in the middle of treatment. And there is, there isn't another option. Like there isn't an option of not having it to maintain your fertility because that is just not feasible. You won't be here to, to have the child if you wanted one. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, the doctors were very clear about it. And you sign it and and you get on with it and it's not it's only been maybe the last year or two that i've really registered the fertility side because i think you deal so much with the menopause symptoms that maybe for me personally i didn't really think of everything else and then it's only as life got back to normal after cancer after covid i see my friends having kids you know i'm i'm 30 now so everyone around me is in that stage of life and it's then or now even that I'm really processing it I think it was a definite I mean sign the paperwork it didn't even register and now it's I think at the forefront of my brain and I remember so clearly when well I think it was a couple of my surgeries actually and the one was to have a port fitted to have my chemotherapy administered through and I remember there was a tiny little snippet in there saying uh, it could maybe rupture your lungs something like a a little side effect it was a little one of those complications like there's with everything but it never even occurred to me for this to be a decision making factor in maybe not having a port fitted and having the chemo put through my veins it wasn't even didn't even enter sort of my thinking but that exact thing happened to me so after I had my first dose of chemo there was a tiny little hole in my lungs and it collapsed the whole lung and I was back in intensive care no. for quite some time because I had a collapsed lung. But I know what you mean about signing things and when things register and when they don't register. And I think people often look, look back, isn't it, and think, well, maybe I should have asked more questions. I speak to so many women who are in surgically onset menopause and they say, well, Danny, why did you know to ask all of these questions before you were put into surgically onset menopause? But for me, it came five years after my initial diagnosis. And so I had time to put my life back in order a little bit. I had time to, you know, work on my toolbox, my anxiety. I had time to become a little bit more empowered. And to also process it all, Yeah, I think. Like you have like that time to process what you've been through, like the trauma, everything. And like you said, just get your head a little bit clearer for you then to think right because I also think it then gives you space to think of those things because when you're in treatment there is no space you have no space to think of anything other than the next day and so I kind of think if anyone is sort of listening and 
we often think back because I know when people listen to conversations there and thinking back and mulling back over their own decisions and what they've done. Bless you, Georgie. <laughs> That's all I was right. trying to hold it in so bad. <laughs> you did so well for the first three sneezes. I love it. <laughs> We can't have that edited out. That's staying. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh no, no, no. That's... I'll blame hay fever. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> to look back with a bit of compassion, <laughs> right, and think I've done the best I could. It was one of those times and phases in my life where I processed as much as my little brain allowed me to process. Yeah. And there will be a delayed processing effect. And I think that is the reality and that is normal um, rather than being on top of everything. So when did you realise then that you are a menopause after your second treatment? Of course, the fertility side is a, a whole other thing. Yeah, so I was probably, I'm trying to think. I mean, I it was probably within the first year after treatment. Um, I didn't get, or I didn't think I was getting the symptoms straight away. I was very unwell leaving my stem cell transplant. So... I think even if I had the symptoms, I was far too weak to even clock on that that was happening. And and it was just in all honesty, like I never know if this is the best way to describe it. Before realising it was the menopause, I thought I was losing it. I genuinely thought I was losing my marbles. I had very low moods. I was... I mean, unbelievably anxious. I mean, to the point where me and Kyle, my other half, would be in the car and we'd say, right, should we go here or here? And I remember at one point I actually pulled over and felt like I was having a panic attack because I physically couldn't decide which one I wanted to go to and the anxiety that surrounded that. But it was, and so I always feel it was, it's more like, it was like irrational anxiety and like irrational fears and and I I honestly it felt like I was losing it because I didn't realize these were symptoms of the menopause I hadn't even looked into the menopause I didn't know what was I mean I know you lose your period but I just I didn't know I was going into it so I I hadn't done any googling I hadn't done any research I hadn't spoken to anyone and so I started therapy which helped enormously and it was only from speaking to my therapist that it made me go, oh, this is the menopause. And she said, yeah, a lot of women come to me when they're perimenopausal because they, they think they're losing it and they don't register all the other things. Like Because I already, I'd lost my period. So I'd already lost my period and I wasn't having any, or I didn't think I was having any menopausal symptoms. So I just didn't put two and two together. And then it made sense the joint pain, the terrible memory, the night sweats. I mean, I went back to my professor at the hospital to say, I'm having night sweats again. Does this mean the cancer's back? Um, and from obviously doing a lot more research now, there are so many different things that I go, right, that's the menopause. And it just gives me so much more clarity than I had when I was going through it because it's not something... And I think it's, I, I don't know if this is the right thing to say, I think it's mad that you, like women in general aren't taught about the menopause because we all hit it at full speed and 
I have to say, I think most of us are clueless, let alone if you've hit it because of treatment, which so many of us do. And, and surely a little, I don't know, just like a little, a little heads up would always be so helpful. But I mean, there are really positives here. Your therapist is amazing because actually many therapists don't necessarily need to know about women's hormones. I mean, it would be great if they all did because for exactly the same reasons you described. But I would like to sort of question or ask you whether your medical team after your stem cell transplant, whether they've said something or not, because clearly they've, they knew they were putting you into menopause. You're a yeah. young person. I don't even know whether for you and your particular type of cancer and all your other medical history, hormone replacement therapy was an option. And we'll get to that in a moment. But isn't this a little bit not just your job? I don't I don't want any of us to feel it's our we have to have the agency to research that. Surely it needs to someone needs to meet us halfway. Right. I mean, this is a big thing. I, I, I really agree. And I, so when I was signing those papers saying that I lose my infertility, no one mentioned the menopause, no one. And, and I, and the thing is, is I, I don't necessarily blame them. They were, they're in the business of saving my life. The doctors go, right, this is the job. This is what we're doing. And I do think all that little fluffy extra bits that come with chemo and, like infertility and all these different things just it just sits on the outskirts because that's not what they're dealing with they're trying to save your life so in that sense like I, I get it but I really wish that there was at the time a clinic like a session or something a nurse who could come up and go right so this this is going to mean all the extra stuff um and I'm not sure I think some I actually had a message I um on Instagram, I was like yesterday or the day before, and it's from a nurse educator, and they are implementing clinics for people going through stem cell transplants and and cart cart like CAR-T treatment um, clinics around what's going to come, the mental health, the physical side effects. And she said, would talking about fertility and menopause be something that we should be doing? And I said, I was like, absolutely, because I know. And it's difficult because at the time, I don't know whether I would have signed up. I don't know whether I would have put my hand up and gone, oh, I want to join this. But I think it should be something that's maybe like just an essential part of the treatment, which would be incredible. And I know it's really easy to say this from the sidelines, who's never worked in a hospital, who's never been a nurse, who's never had to think of the funding. But it would be so unbelievably helpful to just understand it better before you go into it because when I hit that menopause at full speed I didn't even know it was the menopause and speaking I mean I speak to friends who have or haven't had cancer and none of us really know what the symptoms of the menopause are not a clue so whether I mean I mean it's like for treatment it would be great to have that but even in like schools when you have your sex ed and you learn about your periods and and all of this jazz stick menopause on there too it's gonna happen <laughs> because we we are so um compassionate aren't we to teenagers you just asked me about my daughters earlier and I said you know hormones are flying high in the house and the rage is there and one minute they're happy the next minute they're sort of crying 
And we have understanding for that because we know a lot happens when you're a teenager. And really, we just need a little bit of that understanding, knowing that when we hit perimenopause, menopause, the same is going to happen. Things are going to change and often not in the favorable way. But understanding can be so reassuring because it's awful. And we had a girl on our last sort of uh, program as well who said, I've got really bad night sweats. Does this mean my cancer is back? And she didn't know whether it was to do with her menopause. And that is absolutely awful once you've been through such intense treatment. But also we've had oncologists um, on the podcast who were treating people with blood cancers. And when it came to their own cancer diagnosis, they had no idea. They had to seek out our services. And those are oncologists. And so I think in general, there is little talked about so far. It's a survivorship issue, isn't it? We do actually have menopause clinics in the country. They exist, but there aren't many. And in an ideal world, everyone going through cancer whose cancer treatment puts them into menopause has access in one way or another to someone that can help when you are ready for it. Because I think that sometimes there is that time delay, isn't it? And you might be a year after, two years after that you think, now I realise and now I want to do something about it or I want to know what my options are. No, that's that's so true. I just feel like there's this sort of missing, this missing gap of of the help that you need once you've been cancer. Because I just find it's you finish your cancer treatment and then it's okay, off you go, enjoy your life. Which of course you do. You're unbelievably grateful. I mean, every day I'm appreciative that I'm here. But you're left with so many problems that were caused because of the treatment you had. And there's just not many areas that you can get the support that you need afterwards. And I think a lot of people are then just thrown into this lost no man's land of, well, what do I do now? And people just plod on, do the best they can. And it's difficult. And I think if there was, I mean, more signposting help, more access to help, people would probably just feel a lot lighter sometimes. So when you realised this was the menopause, where did you go? Who did you speak to? What was your thinking? Who can help you? I, I only went back to my hospital. I only went back to my cancer hospital and I saw a, a lovely doctor there and she said, yep, you're in the menopause. And it was helpful in a way, but it was brief. And it was something because they don't do menopause stuff. She's a she's a surgeon. She's an oncologist. Like she's not, you know, a menopause professional. And so yeah, and they said, you know, go and your best bet is to go and find someone who is a menopause specialist, which obviously I haven't done yet. But um, she was very helpful because she told me that I could stay. So I take the pill, you know, like the everyday pill because apparently that's got more estrogen than HRT because I can take HRT. My cancer didn't have anything to do with my hormones. So I take the pill every day, which definitely has taken, like skimmed the surface off the symptoms, but it, it doesn't take everything away at all. But I mean, I hear there's so many different things that you can do and you can help, but I'm, in all honesty, I still feel like I'm, I'm quite clueless. And do you at the moment feel that being on the pill is a good way to help you? Or is this something that you're doing because you haven't actually been given other options at the moment? 
I yeah I'm definitely doing it because I don't know of any other options yet and I haven't I haven't taken the time to book the appointments because for me you have to pay for them it's not you know well you you actually don't because and this is where I've you've got I've got a bit of a bugbear really because how old are you now 30 so you're 30 you're in the menopause you've had to deal with two cancer diagnoses massive massive treatment and you're now thinking that you're left on your own with it. And if you wanted to get any help, then you have to pay for it. Yeah. Right? And so that alone is something that is a bit annoying, a bit unfair, because you think, well, I've not asked for any of this. I'm feeling really quite impacted by all of yeah. this. And now I've got to, and I know what it's like. We feel, sometimes we work so hard, don't we, to put our house back in order. We feel like we need to get on top of our anxiety, all of our feelings, our emotions. We need to go to counselling. It's such a big job. And then the menopause is another insult to our original injury. And it keeps on going because it's not going to change now. And then you think, and now I've got to pay out loads of money yeah. to get help. But actually, we do have NHS menopause specialists in the country. And everyone with a cancer diagnosis can be referred on the NHS. Oh, really? And so your GP can refer you, your oncologist can refer you, your surgeon can refer you. And they will because you're so young also. And the effects of you being in menopause for your long-term health, we know your bones, for example, we need to really make sure we look after your bones or you look after your bones. And that might not just be HRT. If in your case you can have it, that's great. But it's also diet and exercise and vitamin D and yeah. perhaps calcium in your diet. It would be great if you could see if you can get referred to an NHS menopause specialist and then we catch up in like a few months time and see what happened. See what the difference is. And that's so helpful to know because I just, and it was, it's an assumption. It's, well, if I need the help, I'm just going to have to go find, find a menopause specialist that you have to go pay for. I didn't know that you could go through your GP, which is unbelievably helpful. And so for anyone else listening, because I know people listen with loads of different types of cancer, they've been diagnosed at different stages and um, different ages, of course, on the British Menopause Society, and I send you a link afterwards, the British Menopause Society has a link, it's called Find a Specialist, and you can put in your postcode and then you can click whether it's NHS or private, you click NHS. And then a whole list of menopause clinics come up and people often think they have to put one in that is near to them or attached to your hospital. Well, you don't. You could be living in Wales and you can get seen by a menopause specialist in London, for example, or the other way around. And so we have access. The only thing at the moment is the waiting list is really long. However, knowing that we can get our expectations right. Exactly. It might be a year. But that's okay, because in that year, you can inform yourself with loads of other things you can be doing. And in your case, you'll be in menopause forever. Yeah. So I've got the time. <laughs> if you're <laughs> going to wait for another year, I mean, you've been, it's better exactly. to know that you've got access to something than thinking there is no one to help. But it's a little bit annoying, isn't it, that no one tells us about these services? I think it's just, and I know, I mean, I don't want to pass the blame because I'm an adult. I can research, I can, you know, Google, but it would be nice if you come out or when you're going into all of this, there are signposted information that's accessible. And so that people understand, because I've just very much thought if I needed a menopause specialist, I've got to go and 
go and find it and pay for it and, and everything like that. And and I'm not sure if that's naive. I just thought because it's such a, what feels like a niche thing that it wouldn't be part of, you know, popping to your GP. So that's so helpful. And I just think it's, it's half and half, you know, a lot of it, you know, you do have to take responsibility for your own health and your own well-being. But having a little bit of guidance there when you already feel quite lost with what you've been through would be so helpful. <laughs> and that's why I think podcasts like yours is so important. And I think in your case, it sounds like you'd probably want to know from someone, yeah, it's a good idea to stay and appeal, Georgie, or let's switch you on to another hormonal treatment for example because that might serve you better you just want to know that what you're doing has the benefit to you for your health now but also for your overall health maybe someone to say actually you've been through a lot of treatment let's do a bone density scan let's make sure your bones yeah. are okay they're strong enough Can't crumbling away <laughs> right because we have all these worries don't we and and then we sit alone with our worries not knowing did were you going what else were you thinking that you might do to help yourself I mean I know you you talk a lot about exercise and body sort of positivity on your fabulous Instagram page and yeah I think it's I mean I'm quite like I, I haven't got it down to a T by any shape or form but I'm learning that movement helps a lot Um, the more I move the better I sleep the less sore my joints are um, and I know eating a healthier diet than I do probably helps a lot more than I am. Um, but it's just, I think for me, I just am practicing being kind to myself more than anything. You know, my body weight's changed my, like where my body's holding my weight has changed. I mean, it's, it, this is all sort of more of the visible things like my skin feels different and thinner. It reacts differently my hair's thinning, which after you've lost your hair a couple of times is not the most fun. And it's all these different things that are more so like on this level appearance based, which I know are down to the menopause. And so for me, I'm practicing a lot of like kindness and just allowing myself to, of course, like somewhat grieve the changes I'm going through but accept them and I think it's so important and it's and it's difficult like this isn't something that I've mastered by any shape or form but it's just every day when I'm waking up and I'm I'm either struggling with how I look or how I feel it's not allowing those thoughts to take over and for me and my Instagram you know I, I create content that's encourages people to be confident in their bodies and hopefully accept their bodies like it's like we're all works in progress or most of us are and that helps me a lot is putting myself in that position and putting myself out there in that way. It's like practice, isn't it? It's, you know, the more you practice something, the more it'll catch on. And I think confidence and acceptance is exactly the same. You've got to practice it to then feel it. And so when it comes to menopause, like symptoms that have affected, I think the way that I see myself that's what that's what's helping me and then I think the internal bits like a better diet making sure I'm eating properly movement that's something that's going to take a lot more practice but I mean as far as I'm aware when it comes to menopause stuff that isn't HRT based or like treatment based in that way I'm a bit clueless all I know is 
you know, eat healthily and move your body. So it'd be great to, if you know any other bits and pieces that you could share, I would be all ears. And you know what, I think sometimes we can't do it all anyway, because when you talk about starting to accept and almost embrace and maybe just sit with the changes that you haven't asked for and that are so clearly there to you, that's a huge job in learning to do that. Other people throw themselves into a really healthy diet and they cut out refined sugars and they cook everything from scratch and that takes up their sort of energy. And sometimes people do everything and then six months later they don't sustain anything. And so I guess the more we can practice doing little things that resonate with us at the time that can then stick, the better it is. I think it's really good to think there are physical symptoms and mental symptoms and that we can address them differently and often at the same time. Like yesterday we had a workshop on uh, sexuality and sex drive and low libido and loss of libido and loss of sex drive, but also painful vaginas, uh, like really fragile skin around the libido, like, like around the outside of the vulva. And so many people really didn't know about the basics and that is moisturizing your vulva and vagina and really coming up with a good regime of not washing with soap that perhaps has irritants. And so I think there is so much to learn about little things we can do every single day that can make an impact. Mm. But before we sort of embark and throw ourselves into everything, it's quite important to think, what are my top three, I think? Because sometimes just sitting with myself, having a cup of tea and thinking, okay, what is going on for me for me personally at the moment? Is it my anxiety or is it my painful vagina or is it painful when I'm having sex? What is it that I want to sort of address? Yeah. And then we can start addressing different things because for people that can't have HRT, for example, there are plenty other, not plenty, but there are some other non-hormonal medical treatments that a doctor can prescribe for hot flushes, for example, for anxiety and, and different things. And they can be really helpful for the right person at the right time. I don't think we can always do it all. No, no. And so working out those top three, and it's actually a real favourite of mine to do, because to do that, you need to sit with yourself you need to check in with yourself and you need to think, okay, what's going on for me in June or what has happened in June? And what do I need to do in July to feel a bit better perhaps? And that might be different every month. And otherwise every month blurs into the next and you think you've got all these symptoms, but actually when you really think some have gone and others have cre crept in. <laughs> exactly. God, I'd never even have thought of it like that because I just, I'm guilty of just having it all in my head all at once. And it's, and it's overwhelming to think like that because you're like, well, how can I help myself when all of this is happening? Whereas if you break it down to write what are the top three things that are bothering you and just focus on how you can support yourself through that. I mean, it just lifts so much of the pressure off your shoulders as well. Because someone that might be dating, for example, might think, actually, I really want to work out in my head how can I have a conversation with a potential new partner of maybe using loops and making sex perhaps more pleasurable um, because we know so many people struggle with um, painful sex after cancer yeah. treatment. So that could be a real, it's a big thing to address, Fred, or it needs to maybe happen that you talk to a doctor and think, are vaginal estrogens appropriate for me? Because they can be transformative. And so that alone is a big tick. Like once you've worked through that, you're like, that's a great thing to have done. 
you can't then, I mean, you can, but it's quite difficult to then have to a great exercise yeah. routine and a great, uh, you know, diet. To do it and all, I, yeah. To do it all. I think it's one thing after the other and to realise what is it that I want to do next. And sometimes I know people have gone through their menopause of malarkey for years and they still have to do that because things change and we change and our needs change. And in a way, it's a little bit frustrating because sometimes it can feel like catching up, like we're constantly catching up, like trying to tackle the next uh, symptom. But there I say, it also makes us feel a little bit more alert and aware anyway. Yeah. And, and that can only be a good thing. No, exactly. Like, absolutely. And I mean, even even just this like short conversation talking about like low libido and things like that and, and talking about the estrogen and like, that's probably more... I've heard more in, in those two minutes of you speaking about it than I have anywhere else. And I suffer with a low sex drive. I mean, it's completely gone out the window and I'm in a relationship, you know, we're young, we used to have sex and now it it's so, it's just so far down on my to-do list and I don't want to be like that, but I've just gone, oh, well, that's just that's just it and so there is a grief yeah there is grief of who we used to be how our relationships were there are also and just yesterday in the sexual health workshop many women shared and they said I don't want to be this person but also I can't be bothered I really can't be bothered but there are pressures that we think we should for those that are in relationships women sometimes feel guilty for having changed uh, people that are starting out on new relationships feel how is that going to work so a whole other can of worms and then most of the time though women think actually have I really ever explored my sexuality and that's really quite interesting has have we done something on autopilot and now something's changed and that autopilot isn't working for us anymore but no one's given us the tools we haven't had the conversations to think how am I going to take this forward? Should I want to have intimacy? Should I want to be close to someone? And can that look different? Like I'm teaching my teenage daughters now that sex is not penis and vagina. Right? And that's it. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's so true and so needed because you grow up and the only way you're taught or not even taught, just told sex is penis, vagina, sex, and anything that isn't that, well, that's just not sex then. But I feel like we're missing this whole chunk and of information that could help people so much more. And even in the menopause where low libidos or painful vagina, you know, all these different things, you have such a pressure going, well, the only way to have sex is this one way, when really there's intimacy in so many different forms. And I'm guilty of this, like I'm, just think well if it's if it's not the way that I have been told it is then it's then that's not it and my partner won't want anything else and and then the fact is if you explore something with someone that you trust and that you are intimate with you'll realize that there is so much more around it but having that conversation is hard when you don't know how to have it and it's so important to have resources like that session that you were just talking about where people can learn that it's okay to have those conversations because most of the time you just keep it bottled up, which never helps. Absolutely. And I also think 
many people don't know psychosexual therapists exist, for example, and they can be really helpful. Sometimes they're part of cancer services and sometimes some counsellors are really trained in having those conversations and they go on extra training and they can be really great. But again, Georgie, I think when we talk about it, it requires a little bit of effort to even open that conversation in my head. Yeah. To then think, am I going to do something about it? I mean, the best way I think is just to immerse yourself and maybe listen to podcasts about sex and intimacy and pleasure. What comes first? Do I need to be aroused to wanting to have sex? Or is it enough to think, let's be intimate? Or do we always need to expect to have penis and vagina sex? Or can we say, let's just cuddle? Exactly. Because we, so many people yesterday said they stopped cuddling and kissing because they're worried it's going to lead to something and if that's painful, they don't want that to happen. So they've stopped hugging, they've stopped cuddling. But again, it needs addressing, right? Like it's and and if you're firefighting other things in your life, then it's another whole project, and you think mm. I've got the energy for it. Now, so one thing at a time, isn't it? Yeah, I've just. I mean, I've just gotten quite emotional listening to you say that because I think it's the first time that I've registered so something that I'm very aware of in my relationship is I have taken a real back seat from like the cuddling the kissing the spooning on the couch because the fear that it then would sort of trigger the thought in my partner of oh, okay <laughs> like it's go time and and when everything how I feel has just everything's just switched off like completely my my head my downstairs, everything. It's just, I mean, it's just not even on my radar. And I've really put a wedge and I, in, I mean, I feel, and I think Carl would probably says he feels it too, like I've put a wedge in our relationship because the fear of if we start cuddling and kissing, it'll then lead on to something more. And I've gone, well, I can't do that. And so just hearing, I think you say that, and knowing that it's maybe not just a me thing. It's everyone. Just, yeah, and that's it's it. And, and it's so much, and this is why I think these sort of things are so important, is because you can feel so alone in what you're going through and what you're experiencing. I mean, menopause in general, especially early menopause, even though, you know, you know you're not the only person, but I don't know many people in the early menopause going through it in their 30s. And, and sure, I've got a lot of, you know, female friends who are older and maybe in it or or past it, but I, I'm not going to go. Also, how's your sex drive? Like opening that conversation is so difficult, and just knowing that you're not alone can just help massively. And and it is so difficult, and that's why I think it's really important to sort of tune into the right tribe. And I don't know if that's the right word, but I think the menopause conversation has really boomed. And I love the documentaries. I love all the doctors and social media. I love the celebrities. I love it all. And at the same time, they're not speaking to me. And I feel like the more we can tune into people like us and, you know, you're really young. This is really young. Most people yeah. won't have to worry about not having sex drive until they're maybe in their, their mid-40s and they hit perimenopause. You're like way too early for that, way too early to worry about even, you know, our own mortality, these are massive things that will change us forever. They've broken us. They've put us back in the wrong way often, right? And menopause <laughs> yeah. prevents for those puzzle pieces to slot back in the right sort of way. 
I feel menopause puts the puzzle back, but some pieces are wrong and it's annoying and it takes forever to say. To refigure it back out, yeah. (laughs) But I think often we don't think, well, it's only low libido. I just haven't got sex drive. That's not life-threatening. So does it warrant paying for a medical appointment and what can someone do about it? But actually, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here and not knowing anything about your medical history, you know, thinking... Well, if you were a candidate for HRT, for example, I'm just saying, because you don't know, you haven't had the conversation, then maybe testosterone would be an addition for you and your particular after your cancer with with everything you've gone through, with any other contraindications. And if this could be explored, then this could potentially help your sex drive. And so I feel like there are so many unexplored options. And what I'd love for all of us is to think, let's go and heck explore everything we can even if it takes time so that at least we when we look back we think yeah I've been really dealt really shit cards but and it's taken me some time but I've tried loads of things some worked and some didn't but I want for all of us to look back thinking well at least I've given it a go because exactly and I think I mean I'm so guilty of just not proactively doing any like because I also you know there is that element of okay, so I've got a low sex drive or I've got this. Yeah, but, you know, it's not cancer. So do you really need to do anything about, like, you just kind of go, oh, well, what I've had before was so much bigger than just this. So I should just be able to get on with it. And I don't I don't think you should just get on with something like this. I think no matter what happened after your cancer diagnosis, if it's menopause or, or other health issues, like it isn't just that you can have help and there is support out there so you know using a conversation like this to spearhead you into actually being a bit more proactive I think will be so so helpful and I know I know exactly what I'm going to do when we finish this recording is I'm, I'm going to send you a link <laughs> yeah I'm going to find myself someone to go and have a chat to because it just I mean even just the thought of of you know, talking to a professional or someone with a heck of a lot more knowledge than I have makes you feel like you're lifting that weight a little bit. And it's, and it gives you a little bit of relief because you sit in silence and you get on with this. You just have to get on with it. You don't, there is help out there, which is incredible. And we deserve, don't we? Sometimes I feel we or I failed gosh the NHS has done so much for me I've had all this stuff done I don't want to add more on their plate like I think they've they're incredible and they do so much for so many people and then I'm just going to add one more you know little thing on them and it just and you do you hesitate because you're like oh well you know I don't want to bother them with what you may feel is like oh it's just like a bit of a me problem or but it's not like this is this is something that not only happens to all women at some point, you're going through it now. And if it's affecting you, your quality of life, your mental health, everything like you deserve the support and the help. Those are lovely words for anyone listening out there. You've just given them a little bit of a go out and get some help if you need it. Open a conversation. Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to be going to be doing it myself after after this conversation. <laughs> So much we haven't spoken about, and I think it just shows how much comes with it, with that menopause conversation, doesn't it? It's definitely a minefield. One thing at a time, 
I can't wait to hear your progress, what's happening. And for all the other young women that you might share this podcast episode with, who are also maybe in their 20s and 30s, who are feeling like you lost and alone, I think I'd love for them to know that they can have access to a professional, even if it takes time, um, and to open up about our experiences. Because if we don't tell our doctors what we're struggling with, they haven't got the chance to help us either. So goes both ways, doesn't it? Really, really does. No, honestly, it's just been unbelievably helpful having this conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you for sharing your story with everyone listening today. And um, stay in touch, Georgie. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the fabulous Georgie. A couple of pointers and one of the things that I always revisit and I always think for myself as well, how does this sort of sit with me is that Georgie said, you know, I'm an adult, I can Google things, I can research things, I'm, you know, very capable of trying to find things out myself. Maybe I should have, maybe this is my job. But I want to challenge that really, because if you're pushed into menopause early, like Georgie, sometimes you don't even know what you're Googling for. Sometimes you have no idea this is it. And if no one has mentioned that this could be the menopause to Georgie, then why should she, why should she know that this could be it? And so I think it needs to be a little bit of both. And we perhaps often are a little bit harsh on ourselves, thinking we should be able to find all of these solutions ourselves. But actually, I, I want to sort of challenge that thought, challenge it for, for Georgie, challenge it for you, perhaps you've also thought along similar lines. And if anything, and if any of that conversation today was interesting and useful to you, then I hope you also take away from this what I take away from it. And that is we all need to talk about it much, much more. Basically, we just can't shut up ever again about talking about the menopause for everyone who's been affected by cancer because there are too many people out there still who don't even know it's happening to them. And they might be thinking and really worrying about their symptoms, but actually there could be an explanation. And if anything, it might give a little bit of reassurance. And so I hope you join me on my mission to make sure that menopause and cancer becomes a real household name for anyone who's had a cancer diagnosis because anyone could be affected. And with that, I love you and leave you. I'll see you on the show next week. I can't wait to bring you a really, really exciting expert next week. And in the meantime, as always, can you try and work out how to leave a review for the podcast, please? <laughs> it's proving to be difficult, but I'd love for you to review it. Thank you so much and chat soon. <laughs>